0: Well, good morning, Spanish River. If we have not had the opportunity to meet, my name is Brian. I serve as one of the assistant pastors here. And man, we're coming into the end of graduation season. I mean, maybe we've got some high schoolers that are graduating here in the room, maybe some undergrad, maybe some graduates. It is an exciting time of the year in that regard. But graduation also brings with it for many, sometimes a sense of anxiety and worry, because There's always that realization that once you walk across the stage and you're standing there with your diploma, this feeling of what's next begins to kind of run through your mind. Because here you are, you've got this sheet of paper and what else? Maybe a ton of debt, but maybe you've also got a job. Maybe you don't. And some people love that. Some people love that kind of, hey, the world is my oyster. But studies have shown that most people don't. Most people feel anxious with that. And maybe it's not graduation for you, but maybe it's something else. Maybe it's retirement, and all of a sudden you're like, wait, now what do I do? Or maybe it's, it's the purchase of a new house or the sale of a house, or maybe it's moving to someplace new, or maybe it's the birth of a child. I remember when my wife and I had our first, and I remember bringing Liam home, and we walked into our tiny little apartment in North Lauderdale, and we put him down in the middle of our living room, and we sat on that couch and we looked at each other and we were just like, Now what? <laughs> like, should I take them out? Like, what do we do? I can't believe they let us leave, right? <laughs> but there's this feeling of like, What's next? I don't know what's happening. And today we come into the final, the final week of Easter on the church calendar. This is Advent Sunday, Advent Sunday. This is Ascension Sunday, the other A holiday in the church calendar. But we come into Ascension Sunday. This is the 40th day actually that was Thursday, but we celebrate it today this Ascension Sunday. And here the disciples are. Here the followers of Jesus are, right? And they're seeing him ascend up into the clouds and you know you know there was this anxiety over them like, wait, oh, oh, I just spent three plus years of my life. Now what? Oh, but thanks be to God that Jesus did not leave them without marching orders, that he did not leave them with a here's what's next. And not only for them, but believer for you and I as well. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. We're going to be looking at three short verses at the end of this chapter. It's known as the Great Commission. And this is Jesus' marching orders to his followers. He is deputizing them and us to continue the work that he had started in the coming of Jesus' kingdom. This may be an incredibly familiar passage to many of you. And so I would ask us, please open a Bible, follow along, so often when we are faced with something that we readily are, are, are used to or have read multiple times, our minds naturally will glaze over it. I've actually read studies that after you have listened to the lyrics of a song eight times, that your mind then stops paying attention to what you're singing or what you're listening to. And many times when it comes to the scripture, we can do the same thing. So we're going to read through this, and I'm going to pray that God would open our hearts and our minds and our spirits to something new this morning. This is the word of the Lord as it's recorded by the Apostle Matthew, a follower of Jesus, a disciple of his, in his gospel, his account of the life of Jesus Christ. We pick that up in the 28th chapter, starting in the 18th verse. Follow with me. The word of the Lord. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to who? But to me, Jesus said. So go, therefore, and make disciples. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I, Jesus Christ, am with you always even to the end of the age. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, all of Scripture has been breathed out. It has been breathed out by your Spirit, and it is profitable for us for teaching, for correcting, for rebuking, but for training us as well, Father. Lord, that each of us in this room, every man, every woman, every child, may be what but may be complete and ready for every good work. So this morning, Heavenly Father, we invite your Spirit, the Spirit of God, to join us in this place. Lord, may you please work within our hearts, enlighten our minds, empower us for the mission that you have placed before us. In Christ alone do we pray this in all things. Amen. Amen. So we find ourselves here on Ascension Sunday. As I said before, it's the 40 days in between Christ's resurrection and when he is taken up into heaven. And in the church calendar, this is one of five feasts that we look to or five main events in our faith that we look to celebrate. Calvin said that every Christian should celebrate five feasts on the church calendar. Three of them in our Western context we do very good at. Christmas and the birth of Christ is the big one, right? And I'm sure you know the other two that follow it. You have Good Friday, the crucifixion of Jesus. And then you have what right after that, but Easter Sunday and the resurrection of Jesus. Ascension is the fourth. The fifth coming 10 days later is Pentecost these five major events that take place in the church calendar. But oftentimes the reasons why we don't necessarily celebrate ascension, even more so than Pentecost in certain ways, is because we're like, well, what's the big deal? I mean, it's Jesus being taken up into heaven. I mean, surely there's more important things. And there are, but the ascension is actually vital, Christian. It's vital to your faith and to mine and to what we believe. The Heidelberg Catechism. Question 49 actually says this, that it is to our benefit that Christ ascended. And it gives three reasons why why the ascension of Jesus is a benefit to you and to I, believer. The first, lead pastor uh, David Cassidy spoke on last week. When Christ ascended into heaven, he sat at the right hand of God the Father where he now does what, but the apostle John in his first epistle tells us he intercedes for the elect. Paul will say this in Romans chapter eight as well, that he is actively praying for you. Think about that. If Christ had not ascended into heaven, you don't have an advocate next to the father. When Satan comes at your conscience with accusations of failure and sin yet again, When your spirit is low and heavy. And when he comes before the father and says, Brian, Brian has abandoned you yet again. He is no better than Peter or any of your other followers. Jesus Christ himself, who shed his blood for me on the cross. God in human form does what? But he turns to his father and says, no, my blood covers him and his failures. And my righteousness is his. You do not have that without an ascended savior. The second, the second is to our benefit as well, the Heidelberg will tell us, in that without Christ's ascension, we do not have the blessing of the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself in John's gospel says this in the 16th chapter. He says, it is to your advantage He's telling this to his followers. He's like, guys, it's to your advantage that I leave this place. And you've, you gotta think, they're like, no, it's not. <laughs> You're kind of a big deal, man. You raise people from the dead. And he's like, no, 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 no. It is to your advantage that I go away. Because if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When Jesus ascended into heaven, 10 days later, we have Pentecost, which is the Holy Spirit descending on the 12th. And now today, every believer has living within them the spirit of the triune God, the helper, the comforter. What Moses in the Old Testament said, oh, that I wish everyone would have the gift of the spirit that I have within me now. And there's a fulfillment to that and there's a blessing in that. If Jesus was still here in human form, Well, he could only be in one place at a time. But believer, God's spirit is working mightily throughout this entire world, throughout his people. And you have that within you because of Christ's ascension. The third that the Heidelberg will pick up on, and the last one that I'll touch on here, is the fact that we have in heaven now before us an ascended man. God himself in human form. But when Christ ascended, he did not neglect or somehow cast off his flesh. But understand this. The scriptures tell us that Christ resides in heaven in human form, a man of flesh and bone, the first fruit of all of creation. And in Christ, as a man in heaven, we have an advocate who is no different than you and I yet has been raised to a body that no longer experiences pain, that no longer experiences death, that no longer experiences turmoil. That is the hope for you and I. Man resides in heaven and he has paved the way that one day when he returns and every knee on heaven and earth bows before the king, bows before the Jesus who will have all power and all dominion and all authority over all of creation, over a new heaven and a new earth. You will in the same way have a new body of flesh and bone yet does not experience sin and death and anxieties and fears. As the Apostle John tells us in his book of Revelation, every tear will be wiped away. We have one of our own. We have one of our own that rules over all, God himself in human form. Everybody wants, you know, I I want a government with representation. You have that. You have that in the heavenly places. Praise God for it. The ascension is imperative to our faith and it's imperative to what God is doing and will ultimately do when he brings everything under his control and makes all things new. And so when Jesus says this in verse 18, as we look at this in in verse 18, what does he say? He says, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to who? But to me, Jesus says, and he ascends before them. And he says that because he's God, but because he's being ascended to that place. And so it's on that authority now that he says to all of his followers, not just the 12, but to all that are there, as well as to you and I, here's what I need you to do. And he gives his followers one command, one imperative. He keeps it simple, right? We like things simple. Simple is good. That's it. He says, go make disciples. There's actually three participles that follow it up. Three kind of how-tos. The how-tos are go, right? Baptize and teach. That's how we do it. But what we're called to do is to do what? To go. That's, that's the how to. But we are to make disciples. Well, what are disciples? One commentator that I read said this. He said that a disciple is someone who understands Jesus as Lord. Lord or master or ruler over their life. This is calling individuals to an absolute commitment to the very person and life of Jesus Christ. In many ways, it's, uh, it's synonymous with what we say is a Christian. But that can be tough for us. And it's tough for me. Think of it this way, right? Let's say you're driving down the road and you see a hitchhiker on the side of the road. I do not advocate for this, all right? Just go with it. But you see this hitchhiker on the side of the road and you recognize this hitchhiker. It's none other than Jesus himself. I have no idea how you know it's him, but just go with me on this, all right? So you're driving your car and there he is. There's Jesus on the side of the road. And you pull over and you're like, Jesus, this is amazing. I would love to give you a ride. Why don't you hop in with me here? And he's like, he's like oh man, thank you. I appreciate that so much. I um, don't particularly want to sit uh, in the passenger seat. Oh, oh, no. I get it. You are the son of God. I would be happy to show for you. Feel free to sit in the back seat. I'll move the seats up. You can relax back there. I'd be happy to take you anywhere you want to go. And Jesus looks at you and he's like, God, I, I don't want to sit in the back seat. Wow. Jesus is awkward. Uh, I'm pretty sure I can get arrested if I put you in the trunk, but... It's, it's, I guess we can make it work. And he, he just smiles at you, right? And he's like, no, no, Brian, let me drive. The aspect of becoming a disciple and understanding and becoming a Christian is saying, look, my life is no longer my own. I have been bought with a price, Paul tells us. We have been bought with a price to those who have repented of their sins and turned to Christ. He does not want part of your life, but wants all of it. And in turn, we are to call others to make that commitment. But how do we get them to make that commitment? And what does that look like in essence? And he says this, he says, says, there's three ways that you do that. You go, you baptize, and you teach. Our senior pastor, David Cassidy, uh, preached a message on this last October. Uh, I know all of you remember it. In-depthly, So I'll just, uh, I'll, I'll draw our attention to it again. Uh, it was in a series that he preached entitled One Heart, One Mission. And in that he talked about this word go. And in the Greek, uh, the word that we translate as go is, is a little bit more involved than that. It actually means like as you are going or as you go. It's, it's, it's in a sense like as, hey, as you're just living life, as you're going about your day, as you're going about your work, as you're interacting with your neighbors, you are on mission in that regard. I had, a number of years ago, a number of years ago, uh, I had a chance to meet with a pastor up in Atlanta, a larger church, and he was talking about struggles that he was having in his context there in Atlanta. And in particular, it was trying to get people to see their lives as mission. And he said, Brian, so often people in the church see it as another service that they get to receive, right? They come in, they get to sing or sing too. they get to hear a message, they come to church for different events here or there, but they're not necessarily engaged in it. It's something that they consume like they consume everything else. And in his context, in particular, particular, similar to us in a larger church where so much is taken care of by the staff. He's like, I'm struggling with that. And he equated it. And I I use this uh, illustration in the new members class. So some of you may be familiar with this, but he said, think of, think of churches like, like how we might structure a business very loosely, very loosely, but you'll have an owner of a business, right? And then he has his managers or she has her managers that sit underneath her. And then they have their employees. And then there's the customers. He's like, look, in the church, we understand that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He has has shed his own blood for his bride. That is the church that he is over now. Ephesians chapter one talks to that. And he's like, and then what happens is so often people will see that that manager and, and employee rung as the staff and the customers are the people that are in the church. Those are the members of the church. He's like, but this is the way it was set up to be. He's like the management structure in that illustration, that is the staff. That are the men and the women that are equipping and training the employees. But who are the employees? The employees are you. You are then tasked with caring for the customers, which is who? The customers are everybody that's out there. The customer is the one that's not here. (laughs) The customer is your neighbor who was hurt by the church years ago and has sworn he'll never go back. Your neighbor is your family member. Your neighbor are your coworkers or your, your, the uh, customers are, are the uh, coworkers, neighbors, employers. Ah, you know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> but what, in that going, we need to understand that every single one of us is going. Every single one of us has opportunities And what my job is and what our job is, is to care for you, to equip you, to encourage you, to train you. Ephesians tells us this as well, to do what? But to to equip the saints for the work of ministry. When Jesus tells his followers to go and make disciples, that's in everybody. Everybody is on mission. And it's not just that everyone is on mission But it's also that every place and every activity that we're engaged in is an opportunity for mission as well. In his book, A Meal with Jesus, Tim Chester does a uh, commentary through the Gospel of Luke. And his main thesis on this book, it's a fascinating book, it's an easy read. He talks about the fact that every single one of Jesus's interactions in the Gospel of Luke centers around a meal it centers around a meal and either jesus going to a meal or leaving a meal he his thesis is that food was the primary means of mission for jesus in luke's gospel every single one of us eats i really hope so otherwise let's chat but every single one of us has opportunities to invite neighbors over for a dinner Every single one of us has opportunities to share a lunch with a coworker. And you're like, "Well, man, that's so ordinary. That's so simple." Yes, it is. And the Bible speaks to it. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says this to those Christians who have that same exact point. They're like, "Look, man, this is this is the great commission. This is the great, great, big, huge commission." I mean, this is supposed to happen in church. That's where, mission, that's where ministry happens. That's where mission happens. It happens on Sunday mornings or Saturday nights. It happens in alpha groups at the church. It happens in, in events that happen here. No, 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 no. This happens everywhere. And Paul says this to these Christians in Thessalonica. He says this in the fourth chapter, verse nine. He says, look, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, listen to this, brothers, do it more and more. Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. Work with your hands as we have instructed you. So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. There's a lot more to this passage, but one of the commentaries that I was reading on this pointed to that and illustrated the fact that Paul is telling these Thessalonican and Christians, look, this will be attractive to outsiders. This will open up opportunities for conversations to be able to share Jesus in unique ways. When you do what? But you are a safe, hardworking gentle person that is not looking to advance your own self but is quietly going about their life there's somebody in our church who i've had the opportunity to talk with who is is meeting with a friend who is experiencing incredible grief incredible grief the type of grief that we would wish upon not even our enemies And that grief is affecting their life. It's affecting their family. And they've pretty much just dropped off into isolation. But for whatever reason, this one member of our church is the one person they'll talk to. And they were like, I don't even know what to say. But they keep asking me out to lunch. And I said, The greater the pain, the less you talk. You have a ministry of presence. The greater the pain, you show up and you shut up. If they're having a bad hair day, talk for a half hour. It doesn't matter. But if they lost a spouse or they lost a child, you shut up and you show up. And you weep with them and you listen to them. And I promise you, if you are a safe space for that individual, they will begin asking questions and they will begin sharing things with you that you will have an opportunity to show Jesus and share Jesus in amazing ways. And Paul is telling the Thessalonians and he's calling them to this and he's saying, look, live a quiet life, mind your own affairs, work with your hands, that you may walk properly with outsiders. See, every single one of us is called to be on mission. Man, woman, child, this is for them as well. And every place is an opportunity for mission. Last story, and we'll close this up here in a second, but there is a, an architect that I knew from years ago, and he told me, he's like, Brian, in my line of work, he's like, what I do in redesigning and building homes for people is really, it's, it's seeped in greed. He's like, my business is all about getting people to build more and build bigger and do more and, and spend more and make more. And he's like, one of the ways that I have found that I've been able to, to interject or influence my job through my faith and talk with others about what I believe." He's, he's like, I, "I use that as an opportunity to challenge people on their needs versus their wants. Do they need as much square footage as they're asking for, Or are they just trying to keep up with all the neighbors around them? What is the need versus the want? And he's like, it has opened up some amazing conversations with people. Your work, where God has placed you, is an opportunity for ministry and for mission. Your family is an opportunity for ministry and for mission. Your neighbor across the street is an opportunity for ministry and mission. And it's in the ordinariness of life, in sharing a meal in building relationships, in living a quiet life, in being a safe person, that when, that when life gets so hard on people around us who do not have Jesus, they look at you and they say, you're safe. There's something in you that's different. Can we talk? And we come to this and we're like, okay, what, what about the last? Well, we're called to baptize and we're called to teach. Baptism is the call to repentance. Ultimately, that has to happen. There needs to be a conversation that says what? But we need to repent of our sin. The consequence of our sin has been an alienation from a holy and just God that punishes our sin through death. Not just a physical death, but a spiritual death, a cut offness from God himself that ultimately leads to an eternal death, which is hell. Something that we cannot fix. And when we call people to repentance, we call them to an acknowledgement of that sin and a turning from that sin, and a trusting in Jesus alone, God in human form, who took death on himself in the cross, our substitute, shed his own blood, and washed over our sin with it, that those who call on his name might be saved. And then a resurrected king, who now resides in heaven advocating for us, That's what we call people to, and that baptism is a symbol of that. It's an outward expression of the inward grace. Right? God has worked in my heart, but my baptism shows it, much like the wedding ring that I wear. I love my wife, but the wedding ring is is an outward illustration or an outward sign of what I feel in in my heart for my spouse. And so we call people to that. And then when we call people to that, we want to see that discipleship continue. We want to see that growth continue. It's not just the act of that, but now it's a growing up in it. And so it's baptizing, but it's also teaching people, teaching people, teaching people what Jesus taught, how we live and why, and all of the scriptures that encompass every aspect of our life. And understand that Jesus is very specific in the order that he places these in. The works that we do and the way that God is molding and building us up in him, the teaching doesn't come first. The teaching is a response to the baptism. No one in this room will ever be saved in any way by coming before Jesus and saying, hey, look, I did the checklist." I showed up at church. I was nice to my neighbor. I actually said hi to that uncle of mine that I can't stand. That does nothing to save us. There's no amount of good works that we can do to earn our way into heaven. It is solely by the grace and mercy of God who willingly gave his own life for us. And then the good works that we do, the teaching that follows is a response to the gift of salvation that we have received. Let's say I ask you for a ride. Let's say I call you up. I have your number. And I'm like, hey, um, so I need a ride to Orlando. Can you give it to me? I need to leave here in about half an hour. Now, if you know me, you would easily do it because I'm an awesome guy. Um, If you don't know me, give it time. I'll grow on you, all right? All right. No, in all seriousness, you're going to be like, sorry, I don't think I can, I don't think I can swing that. But let's, let's say this. Let's say the car that you're going to drive me up there with, this brand new car, this beautiful car, this beautiful vehicle, I bought that for you. Again, I'm a pretty awesome guy. Now I call you up and I'm like, hey, hey, I need a ride to Orlando and I need to leave in the next half hour. Is there any way you can swing it? Your response is probably gonna be a little bit different. Why? Why? Because of the gift that you have received. And hopefully not out of a sense of obligation, but out of a sense of gratitude and thankfulness and joy. You're like, Brian, I would be honored to do that. Christian, our response in how we live this out and as a response to the baptism and the forgiveness that we have received in our repentance and turning to Jesus, the works that we do, the ministry that we do, the mission that we're on, is a response to the overwhelming grace and mercy that has been shown to us through the person of Jesus Christ in his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And you get to be a part of that. He isn't just some benevolent clockmaker who put all the pieces together, wound it up, and then walked away. But he is involved in this because how does he close this all out? But he says, behold, I know you're scared. I know this is a big job, but you're not alone in it. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There is great fear. Look, man, I'm a professional Christian. And I still get intimidated at times when it's like, oh, All right, here we go. Let's have that conversation. But I remind myself, I'm not doing this alone. I'm not alone. Christ himself has promised that he would be with me. Christ himself has walked this road and has done it without sin. Hebrews chapter four, one of my, I think, the most incredibly encouraging passages in the Bible The author of Hebrews says, we do not serve a high priest. This is Jesus who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but has endured in every way that you and I have, every anxiety, every depression, every sense of grief and fear. It tells us that he has experienced every single one of those yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw with confidence before the throne of grace that we may receive the mercy and grace that is needed in our time of need. I don't know where you're at this morning. There may be great pains in your own life. There may be guilt over conversations that you know you should have had, but you failed to. There may be guilt associated with neighbors that you know you have not been kind to. There may be coworkers that you know you have failed in this regard, but take heart. Take heart. God knows where you're at. Christ has endured it, yet he has done it without sin. And he is with you. And where you are faithless and where I have failed, he has been faithful and he has been true. And he has said, I've got something for you. You don't need to, you don't need to be anxious. You don't need to worry. You get to be a part of something amazing. You get to build my church in the ordinariness of Of life and day. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for the privilege and honor, Lord, that you have bestowed on every single one of us in this room, to all who call you Lord, to all who claim the life of Christ as their own. Lord, you have given us a task. (coughs) You have given us the gift of being on mission. Lord, to go and share the good news of Jesus. Every one of us, every man, woman, and child. In every place. So Lord, may you empower us to do that well. Lord, remind us that we are not alone in that, but that you are with us. And Lord, may you continue to build your church. May you continue to change lives. May you continue to encourage, not for any joy or any notoriety or, or, or any thanks we may get. No, Lord, but to you alone be the glory in all of this. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.